Hi, I'm RJ O'Connell, the co-host and editor of Motorsport 101, and welcome to episode 198 of the podcast. Uh, Places you can find us, we are at motorsport101.com for all of our podcasts and written material. Um, We're on youtube.com forward slash motorsport101, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. We're on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. And if you wish to follow the regular cast of hosts personally, you can at Harrison101HD, at Ryan Eric King, that's with two Ks, and at RJ O'Connell with two Ns and two Ls. And if you wish to back the show financially, you can at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101 for $5 a month. You can listen to each show early and get early access. And for $10 a month, you become part of the supporter section of our Discord channel and listen to each show as it's being recorded. Now, this episode's going to be a little different this time out. And this is something that I take full responsibility for. We originally recorded the show uh, Monday after the 24 Hours of Le Mans race weekend. Uh, It was a very good show, and we thank everyone, especially our supporters who was there to listen in live. And something, unfortunately, terrible happened. Um, All the audio for the show was processed and ready to produce, except for one person's, mine. I lost all of that audio track. So in an effort to salvage the show, to provide something that you and the listeners can enjoy, hopefully... Um, What I've done is I've salvaged uh, most of the MotoGP and World Superbike segments uh, from the original recording. I I wasn't much of a part in it anyway. Um, Our main host, your friendly neighborhood, Andre Harrison, did a wonderful job of knocking it out of the ballpark, as he does. One of the best people with motorcycle racing that I know of anywhere. So we'll be... We got that segment on. We have the World Superbike segment, our review of the MotoGP Catalan Grand Prix. And on Friday, uh, June 21st, myself, Ryan Eric King, and special guest Cam Buckley, that's C, Cam, that's C. Buckley 917, without the vowels, um, we decided to review re-record our review of the 24 Hours of Le Mans a second time. And I cannot thank Ryan and Cameron as well for being able to take part in that. Um, again, I'm very sorry that this episode comes out so weird. I hope I've done the best job that I can to make sure that this is presentable. And with that said, I'd like to... And with that said, after this quick musical interlude, we'll be back as Dre, King, and Cameron talk about the MotoGP Catalan Grand Prix. Bikes happened. And I like that I immediately start this segment and within 10 seconds, Steve in the Discord goes, Forenzo is cancelled. Um, Correction. <laughs> Correction. Jorge Lorenzo isn't cancelled. He's straight up retconned. <laughs> he never <laughs> happened. <laughs> like, oh, oh. The Jonathan, he gets the Jonathan Frakes Award. <laughs> his, 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 the Lance Armstrong special, his five world championships have now ceased to exist. They have now been vacated. But uh, yes, kids, we had Catalonia, folks, and uh, it was a interesting time. 
Uh, it's a shame because, I mean, more than anything else, you probably already know what we're going to end up talking about here very shortly. But it's a real shame because this was setting up like to be a real race of the year candidate, which is ironic to say about MotoGP because we just had one at Mugello two weeks prior. Um, but even more guys involved in the lead impact, even more carnage. Fabio Quattararo qualified on pole yet again. The second, the second time he's qualified on pole. Um, on pole position, you know, we had Marquez on the front row, Frankie Morbidelli got bumped up to the front row after Maverick got a blocking penalty. Um, <laughs> um, also shout out to Turkey for the, for like the most interesting reason to leave the Discord after being in there. If anyone sees the Discord message that Turkey just put in there <laughs> regarding why he's had to go, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Let, let, let's just let's just say if anyone remembers the story of my trip to Kent, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> trip to Kent. Oh we, lord! It, yeah, it was. It was the 70th anniversary um, of uh, of Rombie motorcycle races. You know, it was the 70th birthday weekend. I don't know if anybody saw it, but we had a delightfully awkward photo. Of everybody dressed up in tuxedos on the grid. Why? Because reasons. Uh, <laughs> Also, sh- shout out to Hafiz Siren, who clearly didn't get the memo on that and was the only man in a grey suit when everybody else was in black. Way to go, Hafiz. Smash the system. <laughs> Dare to be different. <laughs> <laughs> we, we stand Hafiz Siren in an interesting cho- choice of coloured suits. Um, I, I am all for grey suits, uh, Steve. No, I am here for all of that. Um, but yes, we had a, we had, we had a fun start. Um, Dovi took the whole shot there. Ducati's whole shot device coming in handy once again here. They took the whole shot. Uh, Marquez and Quattararo actually rubbed shoulders and bodywork going into turn four of the opening lap. Like Marquez very nearly went down. That was that was carnage, and that was like the second most dramatic thing that happened in the early going. Um, it's 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 funny because like, and I'm gonna go on a small tangent here. This was meant to be the weekend where things were looking up for Jorge Lorenzo. You know, he was in Japan working with the factory, getting the 3D printers out, working on, you know, aero parts for the bike to make him more comfortable. And, you know, there was some modest gains. He he qualified for Q2 outright, started 10th on the grid. Pulls off arguably the best opening lap of the year where he gains six places and ends up in fourth. And I'm like... Oh crap! Look at Lorenzo. This this could be fun. Lorenzo's back, everybody. And then, literally, about ninety seconds later, um, <laughs> oh dear, there is a run down to turn ten. Um, Marquez is um, pulling off an overtake on Dovi for the lead because it looks like Dovi saw somewhat outbreaked himself into turn ten. Uh, at the same time, Lorenzo, who has since admitted he had a bit of a rush of blood to the head, like basically he couldn't believe he was this high up the field. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> Tries to pass Maverick Vinales for third. Um, he goes in too hot. He trail breaks into turn 10. Remember, this is not the old turn 10. Okay? This is the Formula 1 turn 10. It's a lot tighter. It's a first gear corner in these bikes. And he tucks the front, which is normally bad enough as it is. He completely lands on his shoulder, tucks the front, and then clips the back of Andrea Vizioso's bike, who's just lost the lead, 
who also clips the bike, the back of Maverick Vinales's bike, who at one point was up, was literally Maverick was at one point literally riding his motorcycle upside down. Um, it's a great picture. You, you should really go out your way to find it on BT Sports Twitter. Um, and Valentino Rossi gets caught in the crossfire and has nowhere to go. He falls off his bike as well, just like that. Jorge Lorenzo has taken out four of the top five, including himself, um, in one beautiful fell swoop. Oh, dear. Um, to put it in perspective, the sky fell. The sky fell, and you know it's a you know it, it, it's not a good sign when Keith Ewan, who I normally deadpan on this show for his woeful commentary at times was actually pretty much on the money this weekend and was actually pretty darn good across the board. I hate to admit it. I have to clean my tongue just admitting that. But the line of, like, Jorge Lorenzo goes from hero to absolute below zero. Like, that's, that's a new phrase. Oh, God. And it's, like, the phrase of literally, Jorge Lorenzo, what have you done? <laughs> when he hits the canvas. as he, he, It's just, like, a wreckage of fallen bikes and riders not quite believing what had happened. Um, like, as Lewis points out in our Discord, he just says, and I quote, if there's a single rider that didn't need a huge slice of luck, it's Mark Marquez, who who we didn't mention got away scot-free. He had dodged that he was the only rider that really made the apex of the corner. He gets away cleanly. Everybody else is is on the canvas, and by this point, he's got like a one and a half second lead on Danilo Petrucci, and effectively, the race was done right there and then. Mark um, Marquez doesn't need your help to beat the field bloody. No, he doesn't. But hey, when he, when he got a helping hand from a teammate, or in this case, a, a, a I helping saw on front Twitter, <laughs> teamwork makes the dream work, or something. <laughs> My brother went viral for having like a tweet with 400 retweets on it, talking about what's going to happen when Lorenzo, Rossi, and Dovi all find Lorenzo in the pit lane, and it's literally somebody getting beaten up in a huge pack fight. Um, We're all going viral. Yeah, my brother is now more famous than I am. Like it, it's not that I was very famous to begin with, but here we are. Um, now, like it, the funny thing is, is that I am not in the camp that totally blames Lorenzo for this one. Um, amazingly, I can't believe I'm even saying this. It's like I feel like that was a series of unfortunate events more than like, oh, it's Lorenzo's fault. Listen, everybody does these sorts of overtakes. It happens, and but not not on lap two though. Okay, it's a. <laughs> I love that the first tweet is Steve going. You shut your Marquez fanboy mouth. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I understand, like, if he's lunging to get on the podium with two laps to go, but on the second lap of the race, I don't know about that, fam. It was, it was a tad aggressive, I'm not gonna lie, but then at the same point, at the same point, his teammate is literally passing a guy for the lead. I mean, what do you want me to tell you? <laughs> like, is that too aggressive, or, or am I missing something here? Like, it's... Like, Lorenzo was was a little bit over the line in terms of recklessness, but I I, I was I, I can't believe I'm saying this again. I was thoroughly in the camp of Valentino Rossi, who like actually was like to to, to basically narrow it down. You could basically narrow it down to shit happens. Basically, <laughs> we're in happens. a situation. We're in a timeline where Valentino Rossi is approaching an incident where he got taken out through no fault of his own with nuance. <laughs> with nuance. With nuance. And yeah, it's like, 
Yeah, I, I find it amazing that of all of this, like, Rossi was the most philosophical. It's it's amazing because one guy who was completely livid about this was Maverick Vinales, who, to be fair to the old boy, has been taken out in incidents that weren't his fault for the third time in seven races this season. And uh, Maverick went in on Jorge Lorenzo. And I quote, <clears throat> He only needed to wait for four corners to overtake me. Also on the warm-up lap, he overtook me on the inside without a reason I didn't understand. If you ask me, it looks like a rookie mistake and he's a five-time world champion. Sometimes we have to think on the bike. Lorenzo should start last on the grid. He took out four riders. Today he destroyed my race, Valentino's race, and the Vizioso's championship a little bit because it's pretty hard to recover 25 points. As, as Lewis points out, the one-time Maverick gets a really good start. That happens. Oh, shouldn't we, shouldn't we say that Redacted says? Yes, that, maybe so. Maybe maybe that's a bit more fitting. Like, okay, he's not gonna go. He's not gonna get a back of the grid start. Come on, people. Yeah, I believe like, it's already come out that he's going to uh, avoid penalty. And I think I think that's the right call. I don't think he did anything inherently wrong. I think he just made a mistake, and unfortunately. You know, he collected a couple of rides. This happens all the time in bike racing, you know? It went from being a minor mistake to... And it just snowballed. Real of quick. Course. Real quick. Like, it's... I think the image of it and I think the fan reaction to it, I think because it was Lorenzo, who I think people have been waiting to throw shade. Um, I think this is like the golden carrot they were looking for. I don't think it's that. It's ironic because, like Lewis mentioned in the Discord again, funnily enough, Bradley Smith did get a penalty for wiping a leash out at the same corner on the opening lap. This was this was not picked up on the hard cameras at the time, but Bradley Smith, who's riding for Aprilia as a wild card this weekend or this past weekend, he was deemed to be riding irresponsibly, and he t-boned Alicia Spargaro on the opening lap into that same turn 10 and was given a free place grid drop for next for next time out and poor Alicia had to go to the hospital straight away because he had like bone fluid um we get a bone edemia um yeah fluid in the <laughs> fluid in the knee basically he had to go and operate on that shit like straight away basically excuse um, me while I go screaming into the night so poor Alicia we all love on this show <laughs> Oh, Speaking of <laughs> right, Too yeah, weird. the first, yeah, the first ever podium finish for, for the Patronus Yamaha team, who like this, this, this has been coming for Fabio for a long time. You know, they, like yeah, yeah, like Fabio's been due a complete race, and this was the most complete race he's had by a country mile. He, to be fair, he he had to he had to work really really hard for it, given that. Uh, he had to face the Great Wall of Danilo Petrucci for a good chunk of that race, um, who was refusing to give up that second place without a fight. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll mention why it got a little bit jumbled up in a minute, but Fabio gets the first ever podium for, for uh, Patronus Racing. Congrats all round from the uh, Mercedes Formula 1 team, of course. Sponsor buddies. Um, the whole team was down there. They got they got the group shot in with all the, with all the riders from the Moto3 class as well. A, a, a very warm handshake from Marc Marquez after the race as well. And uh, if, if there's ever a portrait for what the future of the sport may look like, um, I think it could very easily be those two. That French kid is the real deal. To do that 12 days after arm pump surgery is mightily impressive. And On a bike as well. On a bike that isn't exactly the most competitive this year as well. 
last year's Yamaha, which we all thoroughly panned, is now challenging for victories. What the hell happened last year? Seriously. <laughs> Am I missing something here? <laughs> like, I, I don't understand it personally, but hey... Fabio Quattararo, everybody. Um, first, yeah, top flight podium and a brilliant, brilliant performance from him. He was outstanding yet again. And yeah, I, again, if, if that kid isn't the future of the sport, then I don't know what is, quite frankly. Still only 21 years. It's only 20 years old. It's, it's terrifying how good he is. This is Reminds me by no means the last time we'll see him out there. Probably this year. Not, not by a long shot. Hey, M1 Yamaha. Assen in two weeks' time. Hmm. Just saying. Um, Danilo Petrucci rounding off the podium in Ferdinand. Uh, he, had to, he had to fight really, really hard with Alex Rins to get this third place. It was Rins, Petrucci, and Quattararo in the second group. Um, Jack Miller had a little tailgate role at the end as well, but it was those three. And there is a, like, if you watch the BT Sport coverage, there is a hilarious moment where. Like, Petrucci and Rins have been going back and forth now for a good few laps. Rins is trying every trick in the book to get past Danilo. He's trying to break the toe into turn one. Can't do it because the Ducati is mighty top speed. They can't get him there. He, he's tried turn 10. Can't get him there. He can't outbreak Danilo anywhere. He's, a, he's demonically late on the brakes. Um, tries turn five. Can't get it. Now, BT Sport cuts to an interview with Jorge Lorenzo, um, who's obviously explaining his side of the awful accident that happened on lap two. And as this is going on, Rins tries a near-suicide dive into turn one, has to check the bike up because he can't get it stopped, has to... The penalty loop has to save Rins from falling off the bike. It's a phenomenal save from Rins, I have to say. He has to go. He has to go on the penalty road to escape it and come back on. He briefly falls down to seventh. Um, he comes back to finishing fourth in the end. Um, but I love that. Like all this, all this is going down while they're interviewing Lorenzo. And then when they cut back to the commentary booth, Keith Ewan says, and I quote, "Well, great. That's the second time we'll get Lorenzo's wrecked our race." <laughs> oh, that's adding insult to injury. <laughs> what? Well played, Ewan. You can have that one. That was well played. <laughs> yeah, a brilliant ride from Jack Miller. Again, had a poor qualifying session. You know, couldn't get her into Q2. Started on the started on the fifth row of the grid. Came back to finish in fifth. And only 6.8 seconds off the win. Mightily impressive ride from Jack Miller. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of a shot in the arm after the heavy rumours are now dropping that Ducati are going to retain all four of their riders exactly where they are for next year. Not quite confirmed yet, but heavy press hinting and MotoGP guys don't tend to get this wrong. So I would I would say put it in the books. It's gonna be Dovi and Petrix at, at the factory team next year. And Miller and Banyai are staying in the Pramac teams, and, and apparently the Pramacs are going to get GP20s next year, both of them. So, uh, <laughs> um, I'll get to your comment at the bottom, and Lewis, I'm saving it. You'll see why in a minute, but uh, it's very true. Um, but yeah, like I said, like Petrucci third, Rins came back to finish in fourth after his minor penalty loop excursion. Miller fifth. Nice to see Joan Mir in P6 as well on the other Suzuki. Great ride from him. About time he was up the front again. Nice to see. Um, King, KTM is terrible, but your man's Paul Spagro is continuing to do the Lord's work in seventh. Brilliant ride from Paul again. <laughs> like, yep, dragging the rock up to mid Dragging that the- steel pig, kicking and screaming. <laughs> 
How the hell is he doing that? I do not understand. I, like, the man's like defying basic physics by by dragging that KTM into the top seven again. Amazing, like absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, for me, rider of the year so far. He's doing a superhuman job on that bike right now. Um, Takanakagami in eighth, another strong ride from the from the Japanese man. Again, having a, putting together a very very solid season right now on that. Again, again, that's last year's Honda he's riding on right now, and yeah, another very very strong ride from Takanakagami. Good, it's nice to see that you know having a bit of loyalty and faith in a guy can actually come good because Taka's now in the top ten and it's not a fluke anymore. Really strong stuff from Takanakagami. Tito Rabat in ninth for Ravincia. That's nice to see. <laughs> for, for the man who had to have his leg basically put back together like Humpty Dumpty last year, to see him in the top ten was a very nice thing to see. Um, so ninth for Tito. Johan Zarco rounds off the top ten in his best result on the KTM to date. Um, Andre Iannone in 11th, the dentist, Miguel Oliveira in 12th, and our friend and yours, rounding off the finishes, only 13 bikes saw the flag in the end, our friend and yours, hashtag still with Gintas, Sylvain Gintoli in 13th place, riding the third Suzuki Yamaha as a wild card. So, sorry, the Yamaha, sorry, Suzuki, I should say, sorry, but yes, still with Gintas in 13th, great to see. Um, a lot of DNFs here, everybody. Um, <laughs> Bradley Smith and Carol Abraham didn't make it past the opening lap, as did Alicia Spagger, who was, again, was pole-drivered by Bradley. Uh, the four-bike wreckage of Lorenzo Vignales, Dovi, and Rossi. If he's siring, crashed a lap later. Pekka Banyaya didn't make it. Frankie Morbidelli crashed at turn seven. Um, somebody put out the alarms on Frankie Morbidelli because his teammate's making him look a bit sheepish. Um, and Cal Crutchlow, who tried an audacious dive bomb on his old buddy Jack Miller, missed, slipped, and hit the gravel. Oh, dear. Only 13 bikes saw the flag. So we got a points party, everybody. Everybody who finished got at least three. <laughs> Also, as, as Lewis has pointed out on on, on on Twitter, if you have not seen the BT Sport video of uh, Cal Crutchlow and Jack Miller commentating on their old moments, it is a treat. Go out of your way to see it. Like, set up a VPN if you can't watch it outside of the UK, because I think uh, I think BT Sport geo-locked their content to the UK for licensing reasons. But find a VPN or something. They're doing for dirt cheap these days. Um, you know, and watch it, because as Lewis points out, it is utterly hilarious. Those two are a proper bromance, and uh, his favourite line of calling the leash and pole the Asparagus Brothers um, is... Asparagus Brothers! <laughs> it's a sight to behold. It's exactly what you think it is, and I mean that in a good way. Championship standings after seven rounds, and Mark Marquez, for the damage that Maverick was talking about, now has a, wait for it, 37-point lead in the championship. It's almost like Kota never happened. Just fucking <laughs> engrave the thing already. We're done here. Yeah, with Marquez still most likely having a, at least a couple of banker rounds down the stretch. I'm not sure how he doesn't win the championship now, to be honest. Uh... Especially when of... Mark Marquez's bad days are now, hey, he's still on the podium. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not forget the two not-so-great days he had. He lost both races by a bike length. Yeah. Um, bad news, everybody. Marquez might already have one hand on the championship. We're going oh, to level eight, baby. <sighs> 
the unspoken level 8. Martwark has a 37 point lead on Andrea Vizioso in second on 103. Rins keeping it close now on 101. And Danilo on 98 now. So there's only 5 points covering second to fourth now in the battle for the silver medal. Oh, that's going to be fun. Rossi on 72 points, kind of in no man's land, ahead of Jack Miller, who's another 19 back in sixth. Fabio Quattararo now seventh in the championship. Finally, some good luck for the man. He's now on 51. Takanakagami ahead of his teammates uh, on 48 in eighth. Paul Spagaro ninth, somehow, <laughs> in, with 47 points. Again, one of the few guys, I think now actually one of only two or three guys now. Yeah, three guys that have scored points at every single race so far. The other guys being Rins and Petrux are the only other guys that have scored points at every single race so far. Um, and Cal Crutchlow rounding off the top 10 with 42, two points ahead of Maverick Vinales. Um, so, yeah, MotoGP, yeah, unfortunately, kind of ruined by that lap two incident. The fight for second is, a, is worth a watch. Um, I'd say watch the BT Sport highlights for that one, but it's not the classic you're probably hoping it was going to be. Watch the first two laps, laugh at everything that happened, then watch the last lap. More or less, we'll go with that. Moto2, everybody, and sadly, again, not the best race in the world, unfortunately, but we are proud to announce it's a Super Marquez Brothers Day again, because Alex has got a hat-trick. <laughs> oh my goodness me. Like, they it, said it, like, he'd guys, never do it. Is this the year Alex Marquez finally puts it all together? <laughs> It, it, it might be. Narrator, guys, it might. It was not the year it, that he put it all together. <laughs> guys, it might actually be happening this time. He's won three rounds in a row, and that was by far the most convincing. Like that was like it, it was a it was a funny race because it was clear that Marquez and Luti were the two fastest guys at the start of the race, and. It felt like Alex Marquez was toying with Thomas Luti. He was just riding behind him, having Luti chew his tires up. Marquez pulled the pin, and then Luti didn't have an answer about three laps later. And next thing you know, the race was done, and Marquez wins it comfortably by a couple of seconds. Mightily impressive um, performance from Alex Marquez. Maybe his best in Moto2 to date. Probably is. Like, as, as as Lewis points out, a month ago we were worried Boulder was going to walk away with it. Now we're worried Alex will. I think there's a long way to go yet. <laughs> Very true. I mean, again, I, I can understand the Groundhog Day tentative nature on this one because, yeah, we've, we've seen this before with Alex Marquez. He, he's had flashes of brilliance and then it just doesn't happen over the course of an entire season. Um, and I, I hope it works out because the top flight could do with a second Marquez. I think it's been it, we've, we've been waiting for this to happen for half a decade now. Um, I think it's time. I, I, I hope. Anyway, maybe the learning curve might be a bit too slow, but I hope he ends up getting in. Thomas Luti in second, another solid performance from the perennial top contender. Jorge Navarro of another podium is fourth in the last five races on that speed-up chassis. Navarro doing the Lord's work again in third, one of the fastest guys out there. They're having a really solid season. Um, Augusto Fernandez, who must be getting really sick and tired of having to fight Navarro every weekend for a podium spot, was in fourth. Good day for the rookies as well. Enea Bastianini was fifth um, for the Italians at the match in his finish at Mugello. Not a fluke. Nice. It's worth a shout-out to Fabio Di Antonio, who was on track for a podium himself, but then crashed at turn 10. Oh. 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 Heartbreaking. 
I was I was hoping DG was going to get there. He's a lovely bloke. He really is. Um, Luca Marini in sixth. Um, Marcel Schrotter seventh. Xavier Gay eighth. Sam Lowe's ninth. Tsuya Nagashima, who really loves finishing in tenth, ahead of Kingsman's Brad Binder in eleventh. Get your KTMs together, people, for God's sake. Um, Andrea Locatelli, 12th. Nicola Bulliger, 13th. Corsi, 14th. And Jorge Martin rounding off the points in 15th place. Um, and also, again, we've not mentioned Lorenzo Baldessari property yet. Guess what he did? I'll give you a hint. He didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he binned it. Again. For God's sake, Lorenzo, get it together. <laughs> free, free wins, free DNFs. Uh, look, it's 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 like it's literally like his season is a metronome. It's perfectly balanced. We call that the glass cannon. Glass cannons don't win championships. Well, at least not from my experience. Speaking of championships, Alex Marquez is now championship leader after that hot streak. Is now seven points clear of Thomas Luti on 104. Jorge Lorenzo's over. Not Lorenzo, sorry, Jorge Navarro, I should say. Wrong Jorge, he's still retconned. Um, redacted. Um, 89 points ahead of Lorenzo Baldassari in 88. Uh, Baldas, sorry, Baldassari, um, yep. Schrotter in 5th on 73. Luca Marini on 68. Fernandez on 67. Ahead of Bastianini on 56. Binder in 9th on 44. And Remy Gardner in 10th on 41. He's, he's like, He started so promisingly. Now he's had three DNFs in the last four. <laughs> Remy, Remy, Remy. No. Well, another guy I want to see up there. Wade's kid. Now, <laughs> Moto3. Now, to put this into perspective, let me get this straight. John McPhee has the save of the year, surfing on his fuel tank. Kaito Toba low slides into oblivion from the lead with four corners to go. Aaron Canet tries to replicate Rossi's 2009 final corner heave and fails. And Marcos Ramirez somehow makes it 12 different Moto3 winners in the last 12 races. That was all in the final two minutes of that Moto3 race. Ladies and gentlemen, Moto3, everybody. <laughs> you just never know what you're going to get. It's beautiful. It's chaos. It's carnage. Uh, it's Moto3, everybody. Another classic. A... a like, Catalonia is so much fun for Moto3 because you just get... Whoever, whoever's the leader going onto the home straight is going to get swamped by turn one with four guys towing them from behind. Then you see five different guys taking lines into turn one. It's beautiful. You're like The lead changed about about 15 dozen times. Chan Onsu became a bowling ball and wrecked like a quarter of the field. In, the, in it, like again, Celia Lorenzo was taking inspiration from him earlier, um, and all of that I just mentioned. Now, if you have not seen John McPhee's save, go on MotoGP's Twitter account. It's the save of the year, without a doubt. He is gone. <laughs> he is gone. He is surfing. He then goes full legs akimbo like Randy Bamola back in the day, and somehow he doesn't, like, crash. It's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable save. Kaito Toba was on the brink of another victory, and uh, he low sides it and crashes at the turn 10 hairpin with just four quarters left. It was very sad. And as mentioned, Marcos Ramirez's first ever Grand Prix victory. A another guy that's been in the t like that upper midfield of Moto3 for quite a while. Never actually quite been able to put it together for a full victory. But uh, yeah, it happened this time around. He held off Aaron Cannett right at the death. Cannett, as I mentioned, tried that Valentino Rossi do or die move into the final corner. Couldn't quite stick it. Um, but uh, 
if you have, if you have not seen it, it's a Moto Free race. Of course, go out and see it for fuck's sake. But uh, full run in order: Marcos Ramirez ahead of Aaron Canet, Celestino Vanetti on the podium again, Alonso Lopez in fourth, um, Dennis Foggia in fifth, Ayagura sixth, Romano Fanati seventh, Ayumi Sasaki in eighth, Yamanaka in ninth, Jakub Kornfile, the jump man himself, in tenth, Antonelli eleventh, Carlos Tsai twelfth. John McPhee, despite that save, still scored points in 13th place. 14th place for the hype train from Britain himself, Tom Bufamos, who is broken in MotoGP 19. <laughs> May I add? <laughs> if you have not played that game yet, go out of either way to do so. It's very good. Um, but for some reason, on, on, on AI, like, Tom Bufamos is completely broken. I don't understand why. S some of the Brits must have had a figure in the game's code. Um, and Taron Binder ran off the points in 15th. As Lewis mentioned, Alonso Lopez was 4th and he bawled his eyes out afterwards for not getting on the podium, poor fella. He was 0.2 of a second off the victory. Not even a podium finish. Gutting. Poor, poor Toba bawled his eyes out and all. Um, Toba didn't finish, as well as Rodrigo, Yachenko, Jamasia, Tony Arbolino, Mino, Chan Onshu, again with that massive wreck there was earlier, Ralph Fernandez, Garcia, Arenas, and Lorenzo Danaporta, who was in the leading group and was leading the race when his bike had an engine failure. Way to go, Honda. Way to go. Get your jokes in. Get your jokes in now. Arbolino, exactly the same as we mentioned. Arbolino was, again, in the leading group. His engine failed as well. Uh, doubled engine failures on a Moto3 race. Sigh. And now Canet has a 23-point lead in the championship over Lorenzo Dallaporta. Um, look at Lorenzo. Yeah. Canet! Dallaporta second. Look at Antony third on 75. Sassino Vietti in fourth on 68. John Messier on 65, Arbolino and Toba both on 51, Marcos Ramirez now 8th in the championship on 49, John McPhee 9th, and Andre Emino 10th to round off the top 10. Go see Moto3, like, go out of your way, it was uh, absolutely go out of your way to see it, Moto3 is a classic. MotoGP, find it on YouTube. Like, Duty Sports got highlights up. Go watch that. <laughs> That's all you need to see, really. Um, a fun weekend for all involved, unless you're Jorge Lorenzo. He's still probably getting an arm there scored out of the building. <laughs> up next, Stray, King, and Cam recap the latest World Superbike round from Hareth. And we also talk briefly about the new homologation rules that are being proposed, as well as a bit of premature ejaculation in the World Supersport 300 race. I believe they've dropped the count to potentially 50. I mean, there's talks about it. I'm not sure I've seen it hard confirmed yet, but I'm hearing I think they could be dropping it to only 50 units required, which is basically homologation specials. I need to, uh, I need like, to just check something here. <laughs> Hey, if, if the ACO only requires you to build 20 hypercars. <laughs> oh, yeah, because that's going to work Again, out so well. What happened in 90s GT1, King? How long did that last? You know, I have 184,000 burning a hole in my pocket. Honda could use it. I, I, I love that Lewis says in the, in the Discord, official company line, no comment. <laughs> um, oh, dear. I'm not a fan. Um, let me make this absolutely clear. It's... Like, like I, I find it strange that World Superbikes has, has watched how this season has gone down and they thought, you know what would be a really good idea? Just open the floodgates to a bunch of homologation specials you can't buy on the, or you can't buy on the street. 
What's the worst that could happen? Like, we have prototype racing. Like, the heart for me of World Superbikes has always been being able to race a bike that you can buy the 95% version of in a showroom tomorrow. No, you can if you have $200,000 burning hole in your pocket. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, you're asking the Discord account, I'm pretty sure they only made, like, like, I think, like, something like 20 or 25 RC21 VSs. There wasn't many. Yeah, and that bike, in theory, would smack the V4R into the ground. Yeah. Like, basically, it's a homologated 200 brake horsepower version of Marquez's MotoGP bike. And when we say Um, it's a version of it, it's not exactly dumbed down. It's the actual fucking thing. Just with less power and quieter to com- to fit noise regulations and track limits and whatnot. But yeah, that's the way they're, they're clearly thinking this. They want to make more homologation specials. And I'm not a fan of it at all. Especially... Of like, you've seen this season. You've seen Bautista wipe the floor with people. This is your solution? Like, <laughs> seriously? Well... Um, uh, as I, I'm not a fan of it for what it's worth. I like I, I don't like it because the, the problem is is that no one's buying super bikes anymore. So like it, it kind of feels like you know Dawn kind of has to you know force its hand a little bit on this one because like even like people aren't even spending the twenty thousand to buy a new R1M or for example that's been developed by Valentino Rossi and Bradley Smith, you know. These are 200 to 210 horsepower superbikes. No one's buying them anymore. Not in this economy. And, like, I get it. They've got to do something, but I'm not sure this is it, Chief, quite frankly. Yeah, this ties Um, a little bit into my feelings on how Hypercar is going to be run. The last time we had a top flight series go to pure homologation specials, They ended up being actual racing cars with license plates. Mercedes became extremely dominant. Where have we heard that before? Mm -hmm. And the series ate itself within two years and collapsed. But it's like, at least in, I'd say, hypercar, it's like, there there is some notion going in that these, these are... Essentially, prototype cars. Like, yeah, you're gonna have to build a car so aggressive, it, it, it's, like it's, the Valkyrie, which the Valkyrie is the most aerodynamically insane road car ever built, and it's not even close. Ever. The problem with World Superbike is that it's trying to. It, it, it's supposed to fill a niche where it's like people want to see production motorcycles race. They're trying to fight Boy. fire with the V4R. They're trying to fight fire with fire. And they might blow the whole damn thing up. Yeah, because if, if you transform World Superbike into MotoGP Lite, you're just telling everyone, hey, just watch MotoGP. Well, then. that and the fact that if companies start doing this and building pure homologation specials, the development costs associated with the homologation specials are ridiculous. In a series. Yeah, you're going to price people out developing a bike that you probably won't sell. Which means that one team who's willing to spend more than everyone else will become dominant and people are gonna stop watching. We already have enough of an issue when Alvaro Bautista is beating everyone bloody. But hey, in positive news, he didn't win both races this weekend. Huzzah! I like how this is a celebration. 
Yeah, amazingly, Bautista binned it in race two. I was like, oh, crap, okay. We have a race here. Oh, wait, Vandermark won easily. Crap. He's <laughs> human. Now, this is this is a classic here, folks. Uh, World Super Sport and the hectic race over the line. We had a four-way fight on the line um, between Manu Gonzalez, Mark Garcia... Um, and Anna Carrasco taking the podium. But we have to give a shout-out, kids, to one of my favourite running jokes on this show. It's not Fight Club. It's what we call the Jacobellis moment. Um, kids, don't ever fall into the trap of the premature celebration. It's, it's, it's not good. You look like a fool. Ask Alex Rins in his Moto 3 days. If you want a link to the Discord chat, guys, who wants to see this, here it is. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen... I present to you Galang Hendra Pratama from Indonesia, who thought he won this photo finish. Oh no! No! <laughs> oh, the man thought he won it! Oh, In it's words, so heartbreaking. The DJ Khaled, congratulations, you played yourself. Oh dear, like. I honestly don't know how he thought he won that. Like, he's pulled out of a slipstream. Like. 100 metres from the line. And it's like, dude, you're nowhere near. <laughs> it's like, wh why did you think you won? Oh, no. It's like, like, like dude, the photo finish is like t 20 metres in front of you. Oh, apparently, uh, according to Lewis, apparently our, our, our beloved Pratama thought he finished on the podium. And the saddest part is he didn't even finish there. He finished in fourth, a tenth of a second off the win. Ugh, it's it's heartbreaking. Manuel Gonzalez won that photo finish ahead of Mark Garcia by 19 thousandths of a second. Uh, with, with Anna Carrasco third, 0 0.048 behind. Kids... Don't do a Jacobellis, okay? We can't have this, otherwise we will be forced to mock you on this program. Ratama, I'm sorry. It can't be this. <laughs> Poor fella. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Up next, me, Ryan, and Cam debrief for a second time the 24 Hours of Lamar which gave us time to digest um, some news that went down 24 hours after the race concluded. The 87th running of the 24 Hours of Le Mans has come and passed. We've had a few days to digest this, more so than usual. Remember, kids, always export your audio files. Even if you're sure you've exported them, make sure you've exported them again. God so, uh, damn it, RJ! <laughs> <laughs> and when you uh, tell yourself you're only going to take a nap for an hour after work, make sure that that hour is an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Not five hours. <laughs> Just waking up like Robin Williams, like, what year is it? It's 2009. Sure, yes. above all else, that when you're recording a podcast with your dear friends... You take the batteries out of your home phone. Lama, the 87th running of the Grand Prix d'Andurance. It happened. And surprise, Toyota managed to do something very special. They managed to repeat as winners, repeating what they had waited 33 years to do just once, and they still 
managed to have heartbreaking disappointment all in the same race. <laughs> oh, yes. As you may well know by now, it was the number eight Toyota of Fernando Alonso, Sebastian Buemi, and Kazuki Nakajima, which ended up taking the overall and LMP1 age victory ahead of the sister number seven car of Mike Conway, Kamui Kobayashi, and Jose Maria Lopez. And you might think, well, it's Buemi, Nakajima, and Fernando Alonso. You might think that, you know, this was preordained from the beginning, but hold on a second, because all weekend of the race, all week starting from practice into qualifying into most of the race themselves, where the number seven car led over 330 of the 385 laps completed, the number seven car was the dominant car of the race. Yes, um, to put this in perspective, Mike Conway was on another level this race. He drove the race of his life. He was the fastest driver on average out of anybody, in any class, in any car. That's right. Um, so a couple of things here about Mike Conway. On his second lap of the race, he put in a time of 3 minutes, 17 seconds, .297. That is the fastest ever race conditions lap ever around the Circuit de la Sarthe. In history. Fa faster even than the 2015 Audis, which were allowed significantly more fuel flow and were allowed to dump a whole lot more hybrid power at a given moment for boost. The average of his fastest 30 racing laps, and we would like to thank the folks at the B-Pillar, thank you, Matt, um, for compiling this data. His fastest 30 laps average was almost seven-tenths of a second quicker than the 30 fastest laps average of Fernando Alonso. That is, uh, that's two-time Formula One driver's champion, Fernando Alonso. And, you know, we, we're, we're vaguely familiar with Mike Conway through his IndyCar accomplishments. He was the ultimate road and street course ringer for a time uh, before taking on this gig with Toyota. And he's been, he's been quick all season, but that team has never been lucky. Mike Conway, Kamui Kobayashi... And the hard luck story of the race, Jose Maria Lopez, a driver who's been roundly criticized for underperforming and throwing away races in that seven car, he drove the race of his life. But in the final hour of the race, Cam, oh. let's well, talk about it. Well, the number seven car, well in control after a safety car ex opened up the gap between themselves and the sister number eight. Remember this, it becomes very important later. <laughs> they had no pressure. They were calmly going through traffic, keeping their pace under control, and then the, t the car reported a puncture back to the pits. Oh. Now they yeah. come in, they take it slow, they have more than enough of a gap, and they change what is reported to be a flat right front tire. The car goes back out of the pits. Problem solved, right? <laughs> As it turns out, it was the right rear tire that had deflated. How yes. could team? How could a team like Toyota Gazoo Racing, the only factory team in Premier Class Racing, with a wealth of resources and engineering and data to pull from, how did they get this wrong? Because, as was diagnosed in the post-race. The wiring loom had been wired incorrectly by the team, and effectively, while the tire sensor was not malfunctioning, it was reporting on the wrong corner of the car. Toyota lost this race because of a part that cost of just a few bucks 
that was wired incorrectly while still functional. I mean, they finished 1-2. They had a 1-2 finish in this race. Let's not forget, Toyota wrapped up both championships with back-to-back 1-2 finishes at Le Mans the Super Season. Yes, sir. But it doesn't feel like a 1-2 finish for Toyota, does it? No. Somehow a 1-2 crushing performance at Le Mans has ended up somehow with crushing disappointment. Right. And you could see that crushing disappointment on the faces of Conway, who was damn near ready to burst into tears on the podium. He didn't want to be on that second step of the podium. Kamui Kobayashi had said after the race, you know, I don't really like Lama right now. Yep. And <sighs> Jose Maria Lopez put it best. I cried all the way back to the pits. It's... It's a real shame because that team was was due a stroke of luck. And, you know, I think it was a given that the number eight team, Buemi, Nakajima, Alonso, they were going to win the World Endurance Drivers' Championship anyway. So the feeling was, right, the seven can win the race. There's no pressure on them anymore. They can win the race. The eight car can wrap up the championship. And Toyota can take a one-two finish because that's what's expected anyway since the start of the super season for every single round. And it didn't play out like that because of the last hour of the race— that result was overturned. And Buemi, Nakajima, and Alonso go back-to-back at Lama for the second time this season. Because remember, it's the super season. It's the super season finale. Yes, and it's also worth noting, um, both Toyotas seem to be flying almost in formation with the 8 fairly far off the pace of the 7, because going into the nighttime... We began to see trails of something coming from both Toyotas. Yeah, we watched this race together as it was going at nightfall, and uh, and you were reporting there was smoke pouring out, and I was just thinking, like, no, please don't tell me they're going to break down overnight. No, instead, what we got is, in the words of M101 supporter Tony, the world's slowest hand job. <laughs> Because both cars puffed smoke, both cars had electrical issues, including one where the headlights shut off going into Indianapolis in the dead of night. Oh, no! (laughs) And until that last hour, when that problem cropped up on the number seven car, they never really showed anything beyond just tiny technical problems. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's... I know... I know, like... In the case of 2016, it was different. They didn't have a car that could last a full 24 hours. This one was a total administrative oversight. I don't buy that it was a conspiracy to give the number eight car the win because it's Fernando Alonso at the helm. Uh, I think this was more of a case of, as Eve Hewitt, Overseer of Radio Show Limited, put it, a combination of bad luck and bad management. Yes, because... When they had that first puncture, they only changed one tire. Now, they tried to justify this. Go ahead, RJ. They had enough time to change all four, Cam. That's the thing. They They had had a well north of two-minute gap. They could have stopped to clean the car. In fact, during the race, they actually made pit stops to clean the goddamn car. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, like, even if they would have lost the lead on track, with the pace of the seven car, because... Go back to the start of the race week. The number eight had some sort of arrow imbalance that was plaguing them all race long. They were nowhere on the pace of the seven car. Yes. So they could have made that up on track. Easily. And in fact, 
they damn well almost did because they cut that gap down to I, I can't remember the number but the uh, the final gap at the end was 16.9 seconds at the end yeah. this is the first time that it was over teams, 30 when yeah. they came back out of the pits they were clawing seconds a lap out of the a car trying clawing to try and get their win back and it just wasn't enough but back to the changing tires bit now they tried to justify this post race by saying well the tires we had were four stints old i counter in 2016 with toyota seemingly in prime position to take the race win with porsche hounding them porsche gets a slow puncture on the number two car of neo Gianni, and they bring him into the pits they changed all four tires, they left nothing to chance, and as a result of the intercooler line failing on the number five, Porsche got a win because they played it safe. Toyota had an unassailable performance advantage over everyone else, and the number seven car had two minutes over the next car, and they took that risk. Their own teammate. Their own teammate, and they took that risk, and it lost them the race. On the other side here... A major accomplishment for the trio of Alonzo and Buemi and Nakajima. I don't think we need to belabor much, King, how big this is for Alonzo. His third world championship is first since 2006. He's still going for the Triple Crown, although not this year. I get it. I want to talk about the other two guys. You know, the guys whose names are are often omitted from the headlines. Often. (laughs) <laughs> it's almost like Fernando is supposed to be single-handedly driving the car, according to some people. Yeah, it's worse than the worst perceptions of when Nico Hulkenberg won the race for Porsche in 2015. <sighs> and even the media didn't touch that then. At least not the more civilized among them. Yeah, consider this was a season where the WEC had played um, played checkers with one date on the calendar just to try and fit it into Alonzo's schedule. And if you believe the most cynical of people, they will tell you that they wanted this race, every race ordained so that, Al- that not only Toyota could win, but Alonzo could win as well. It happened last year and it happened the year before that. But I don't want to talk about Alonzo too much, lest I get called out for playing to my stereotypes in the show. <laughs> I want to talk about Sebastian Buemi. I want to talk about a man who was run out of Formula One at the age of 23 when Dr. Helmut Marco said, we've seen enough of Sebastian Buemi after three seasons and we've had enough of him. We want Grand Prix winners at Red Bull and they're not, and he and Jaime Arguesuari at the time, because remember, at the time that he and Sebastian Buemi and Jaime Arguesuari were let go, I should say, when they were let go, it was Arguesuari that were thinking, oh man, that sucks for him. I mean, yeah. Buemi's had his chance, but come on. But see what he has redeveloped himself into after being with Toyota. Again, Sebastian Buemi and Kazuki Nakajima, of the six drivers that were with Toyota back in 2012 at Le Mans, they're the only ones left. Alex Wirtz retired. Toyota found no more room at the end, first for Nicola Lapierre and Stefan Sarazan, then Anthony Davidson, of all people, for crying out loud. Uh, So they're the only ones left. Buemi, of course, already a World Endurance Drivers Champion, already a Formula E Champion. In fact, through his first three seasons of Formula E, he still has the all-time wins record in the championship. He has not won a race in two seasons. He has not won a race in two seasons uh, due to changing a lot, uh, you know, allegiances 
of his team. He's gone from being a Renault factory driver to being a Nissan factory driver. So he's a Nissan factory driver alongside being a Toyota factory driver. I sense all no this, conflict of interest here. <laughs> and all this, and Sebastian Buemi is still just 30 years of age. Remember, he came into Formula One just when he was still just turned 20 years old, as a matter of fact. And, you know, it's it's amazing to think how much success he's had. You know, he is still part of the Red Bull family, but let's face it, he's not going to be the next Sebastian Vettel, the next Max Verstappen, the next Daniel Ricciardo, but he is having an incredible wealth of success. And how about Kazuki Nakajima? <laughs> Ten years ago, when he was driving for Williams alongside Nico Rosberg, in a car that Rosberg nearly won in and scored points on several occasions, Nakajima was struggling so badly to the point that he was the only driver to start every race that season and not score a point. Here were some other drivers that didn't score points in that 2009 championship. Disgruntled Renault employee Nelson Piquet Jr. Romain Grosjean and Jaime Algersuari. Two very rushed rookies who were thrown into bad spots from the beginning. Vid Antonio Liuzzi, a race-rusted Italian. Luca Badwer, a very, very, very race-rusted Italian. And I believe it was Mark and Brundle who said in the offseason that Kazuki's a nice guy, but he just doesn't have the pace for Formula One. He can't string it together over full race distance. Well, as it turns out, in order to find himself as a racing driver, Nakajima had a loss in F1. Already, he's a two-time Super Formula champion. Already, he's won the Suzuka Summer Endurance Race. And now he is the first Japanese driver to win any discipline of an FIA World Drivers Championship. That is huge. Yeah, that's massive. And to come in, you know, with his debut with Toyota in 2012, of course, causing a famous, for all the wrong reasons, crash with a certain... <laughs> experimental racing car which created one of the saddest scenes in all of motorsport since then he's transformed into an absolutely brilliant endurance racing driver he has everything he has the speed the consistency and the temperament it was wonderful his he was so consistent maybe not the fastest driver in that car but you know very consistent yes. now i know we're we're wanting to pick things up here as well i want to talk about the privateers because one of them had to finish on the overall third place podium SMP Racing with the AR Motors, Vitaly Petrov, Mikhail Lotion, and Stoffel Van Dorn finishing third overall. Everybody doubted me. Everybody doubted me when I was like, hey, SMP is going to be competitive out Well, this. little did we know that <laughs> the Gibson engines would turn heel and start blowing the fuck up. <laughs> and, you know, when we think of, yeah, that's the thing, because the other SMP racing car, the 17 of Sarazan, Igor Rujev, and Sergei Sorotkin had crashed out. It didn't suffer many technical oh, failures. They didn't just On crash On the other out. hand, Rebellion Racing had occasional uh, mechanical failures. And I want to talk about Rebellion Racing, in particular the number three car, because they were the feel-good story of the spreadsheet, as I say. I referenced back to Matt's data from the B-pillar on those fastest 30 race laps. And again, this is a non-hybrid Rebellion car. Effectively um, a blown-up LMP2 Orica. Yes. Gustavo Menezes, out of every LMP1 driver, had the second-fastest average. He was slower only than Mike Conway 
by fractions of a second. Thomas Laurent, who Toyota just signed as their development driver, was fifth overall. Yes. Now, when I said earlier that Toyota had an unassailable performance advantage, I didn't necessarily mean speed. The number three rebellion, when running, when running cleanly, it had the speed. Which, oh, but it just wasn't meant to be. Yes. A multitude of technical issues and having a huge crash going down the Mulzahn. Right. Thomas Laurent was lucky that after cr- crashing uh, straight head on into the wall, um, that they could just repair the car in three minutes. Yeah, yeah they were almost <laughs> yeah. lucky. They were lucky it was head on, which is kind of weird to say. Because it didn't really cause any suspension damage. They were able to replace a couple components, change out the nose, and get the car back out. They also had the brightest of noses on that car to finish off the race. Oh, yes. Uh, Rebellion Racing and their Splatoon 2 off-the-hook paint jobs. Um, They might have been the shoe-ins on pace to take that overall third spot. And I would have said this. if, If the Toyotas had more serious issues... They could have taken second overall. Hell, I would have even pegged them for the win. But it just wasn't meant to be because around daybreak, the number three took a three-minute penalty for a tire identification administrative error. And then Gustavo Menezes, having been the fastest driver, apart from Mike Conway all day, spun and put in in the gravel. And after they had more brake problems, that was it for Rebellion's Challenge for the overall podium, which is a real shame, because that was a sterling performance, bar those incidents. You know, I, th- I think it goes back to what Audi taught us in a Formula E. To your goddamn paperwork. Yeah, make, su- make sure the stickers match. Yeah. Oh other, my goodness. Other privateers involved, the number 10 Dragon Speed which had a litany of gearbox issues and retired early on. Yeah, non-factor. And we were all hoping that the Baikalas could finish the race, because that would be a massive victory again. Spoiler, they did not finish yes, the race. Yes, the LMP 1.9999 retired during the night with an undisclosed catastrophic mechanical failure. So that means we've gone a decade now without Baikalas finishing a 24 hours. And the last time they Their finished... Last- Someone else built the car. Yeah, with a customer Audi R10, driven ironically by future Audi franchise player Andre Lauder, <laughs> who was in one of the other rebellions, believe it or not, the one with Neil, Yanni, and Bruno Senna that uh, that finished, uh, I believe it was fifth overall. Yeah, and oddly enough, yeah. a car with Neil, Yanni, Andre Lauder, and Bruno Senna, basically a non-factor during the race. Mm. Oh, no, it was fourth overall because they did make up the sit slaps on the number three car. Now, I want to quickly move into LMGT Pro because if you're feeling cynical about the state of LMP1 or its successor, LMP Hypercar, GT Pro always delivers fun, entertaining excitement. We're talking Corvette versus Ford versus Porsche versus Ferrari versus BMW versus Aston Martin in a knockdown, drag them out, bar fight, battle royale, over the top... 30-man WrestleMania challenge for 24 hours. And uh, we did get that. But unfortunately, through two major safety cars during the race, one about halfway in, one with three hours to go, a tremendous multi-manufacturer GTE battle more or less became Chase the Rabbit. (laughs) Right. Now, earlier this year, 
in response to complaints about the safety car procedures at Le Mans, because there are multiple safety cars at Le Mans, it's not just one, it's the largest track in the calendar, you kind of need that for safety purposes. They implemented the full course yellow, sy yellow system, which, so instead of neutralizing just certain sections of the track, they had the power race control did to neutralize the entire track and hold everybody to 80 kilometers per hour, instead of bringing out a full-on safety car and risk breaking up the field. Cam, did it exactly work out in practice? Uh, in the full course yellow side of things, that did work out. It was a major improvement over the safety cars. However, however, two major safety car interventions broke up multiple battles during the race in three of the four classes. And one of them involved one of the GT Pro cars, the Pole winning number 95 Aston Martin Vantage. Yes. Uh, which got a Friday balance of performance nerf. Um, started well, but quickly fell through the field as it was shredding its tires to compensate for the turbo boost lost. And then Marco Sorensen had a terrifying crash, which we are all very lucky that he only, and I say only, you know, only means he came away with it with a moderate to severe concussion and a broken foot and is going to miss this weekend's British GT race. But he's very lucky to have walked away from yeah. that, figuratively speaking. Um, Carr just lost the rear going into Indianapolis, VMAX. Um, we thought the car was bad and we were looking at its good side during the broadcast. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so happy that he's still here with us and he should recover. Mm -hmm. However, the ramifications yeah, it... of this involved a safety car being called in that incident. Now, this had an effect on two of the classes, LMP2 and GTE Pro. We'll focus on GTE Pro right now. GTE Pro was being led at the time with a battle between the number 92 Manti run and championship leading and winning number 92 Porsche. With the gold foil Chevron design. Yes. Gold. And the number 51 AF Corsa Ferrari. This safety car effectively pushed them a good minute and a half up ahead of the rest of the field, consisting of the number 63 Corvette, which had led early on during the race, the other contingent of Porsches, and the Armada of four GTs. And then, well, my boys in Porsche, well, the number 92 had a catastrophic exhaust system failure, <clears throat> dropping them out of contention and risking their championship lead. This left the number 51 Ferrari out with a massive gap ahead of everyone else in GTE Pro. Now, during the next few hours, the Corvettes and the chasing Porsches started to cut this down through fuel mileage and just through sheer outright pace. However, breaking the hearts of myself, Adam Johnson, and uh, supporter of the show, Tony, with three hours to go, the Team Netherlands, uh, Delara LMP2... Yes, yes, the Minority Tribute Act <laughs> uh, crashed and brought out another safety car. Yes, ironically at the same point as the last safety car. A crash going into Indianapolis. And oh man. Yeah, that pretty much killed any chance Corvette had of coming from behind to win that race, essentially. Yeah, not just them. Because of the safety car procedure not letting a car out of the pits if it goes in for service, Corvette brought the number 63 in to try and get one up on Ferrari where they would 
effectively gain a pit stops gap. And in other series where you're allowed to catch up to the next safety car, they would have gotten that pit stop gap and suddenly the game would have been on because the number 51 had to pit under green. Yeah, However, but no. If, if you pit at the 24 hours of the month, they do not allow you to roam the track freely and catch the next safety car ahead. You have to wait for the next previous safety car to pass pit lane and you join the end of that safety car line. Yes, which unfortunately leaves the number 63 Corvette, the number 91 Porsche, and the number 93 Porsche. (sighs) Factoring in the pit stop with the 51, well over two minutes behind. (laughs) A fair play to the number 91 and 93 cars. They, They did try to claw back some of this lead. Ultimately, it was unassailable. Though, then the number 51, A, of course, of Ferrari, their first win in the class since 2014, Alessandro Pierguidi, former Force India tester James Collado, and Daniel Serra, who becomes the first driver in the GT Pro era to win for two different manufacturers after with Aston Martin two years ago. Yes, and uh, unfortunately, in that last bit, we left out the number 63, because right after the safety car went in, on the ragged edge through the Porsche curves, the number 63 gets a moment of snap oversteer and eats it. This after the 64 car only made it 82 laps in after a very scary incident on both the part of Marcel Fussler and GT Am driver Satoshi Hoshino. They come together at the Porsche curves as Hoshino moves in on uh, Fussler's car as Fussler's trying to make a very, very risky pass and that writes off the 64 car. Hoshino was so scared after the incident that they effectively had to retire the number 88 Proton Dempsey car because he didn't want to go back out there after that incident. And people were upset that Fossler got the full blame for the incident as well. Fossler, who I'll say they, they didn't deserve the full blame, but they did deserve some blame. You dive it up the inside of a GT car at Porsche Curve 3, you're asking for trouble. Just ask Anthony Davidson. And of course, owing to the competitiveness of LMGT Pro, and then the fastest forty drivers in the category on their on their forty on their fastest thirty laps, that top thirty was within two seconds. The spread from Antonio Garcia in the sixty-three Corvette, the fastest, to Jules Gunyan in the number eighty-nine Rizzi Ferrari, the slowest out of that forty. Yes, and uh, yeah, number ninety-one and number ninety-three. They cut that gap from over two minutes down to about a minute on track pace alone. But it just wasn't enough, as you said. Yeah. Now, but the 92 Porsche does come away with the uh, the World Endurance cha- GT Championship for Kevin Astra and Michael Christensen because they dominated the season. Yes. Now, this this spot for fourth place, it's it's covered in whiteout. <laughs> uh, there had, there oh, had to be an amendment. <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, it's okay. As long as it's just one of the Fords. Oh, no. Oh, no. We've had time to digest the double Ford disqualification, not only impacting the number 68 Ford Jeep Canassi GT Pro car, but also the the provisional race-winning GT Am entry, the number 85 Keating Motorsport, wins Motor Royal Ford GT of Ben Keating, Jerome Bleakamolent, and Felipe Fraga. 
Could you tell the listeners oh. why these Fords were disqualified? They were disqualified um, for, for first, the number 85 was first given a 55-second time penalty, which effectively took away their win, dropped them to second in the class. Uh, for refueling faster than the prescribed 45 seconds, they were clocked at 44.6 seconds. Yes. They were given a time penalty equivalent of the time they would have saved multiplied by four. Then it was found out that their fuel cell was too large and they were disqualified from the race with the same issue that impacted the 68 car. Yes, both Fords had too large a fuel cell. Um, The 68, thinking it could have potentially been because this was a United States prepared car. This is one of the cars that comes over from the U.S. from IMSA. However, the 85... Well, they admitted that mistake. They had measured the fuel tank in a way that wasn't as reliable. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how much it actually was over because the ACO simply stops measuring as soon as you go over, in the case of the Ford's the 96 liter limit, and you get a slam dunk disqualification. Right. It initially came out in the report that they were 100 milliliters over. And this got people outraged that it was just 100 milliliters. It was just 100 milliliters over. It's not that much, which, okay, if you're ever out drinking and driving in the road, which you all, which I always recommend, by the way, <laughs> if you get pulled over with alcohol in hand, you just tell the officer, but it's only 100 milliliters. It's not that big a deal. It's sound legal advice and you will get out of trouble every time. Yes. Now, some of those on social media took to social media and decided to say, oh, well, they're just they're just punishing the American team. This has been a thing for a while now. And as a point right. of reference, 100 milliliters is the TSA limit of liquid they'll allow you to carry on an aircraft. <laughs> yeah. Right, and you might think 100 milliliters, that, that, that's just 100 milliliters. Again, that adds up over time. Yeah. That adds up over pit stops, and we noticed that that car was making exceptional fuel mileage. Yeah. I, I hate it for Ben, because by all accounts, it seems like an awesome dude. And Jerome and Felipe are two top-class drivers who really carry that team quite well. It's a shame because that it doesn't count, and it's a shame they won't be back at Le Mans next year because of this. Mm. But I don't think it's DACO putting the screws to IMSA, because that was that was always the fight I was looking for. The ACO was trying to screw IMSA crowd versus the cheating ass Ferds crowd that's been popping up since 2016. And I ask you this: if it was just Ganassi Fords that got caught with this, nobody would be that upset. Nobody would be that upset at all. Yeah, no, nobody's crying for Chip Ganassi. Yeah. Nobody is crying for the team that performed the ultimate heel turn of BOP gamesmanship in 2016. Yes. Now, the official word from Keating is that the the fuel cell had expanded by 0.4 of a liter during the race. As I said, they start measuring. If you go over 96 at all, see you next year. And, uh, if you get invited next. If you year. get invited, they're going to have to earn that through some other means now. However. Which would likely be. Yeah. On the other hand. Car that ended up winning. The Freshmaker himself. Agidio Perfetti is a Lama winner. <laughs> Jorg Bergmeister, the giant of Leverkusen, for the first time in 15 years, wins his class. And Patrick Lindsay as well. Team Project One on their debut season wins Lamont and to cap off the super season and with it takes the GTM championship. 
and also keeps the number it also keeps the Porsche 911 RSR perfect in GTE AM. The number 84 JMW Motorsport Ferrari of Jeff Siegel, Rodrigo Baptista, and Wei Lu finished second. Number 62 WeatherTech Racing Team, another IMSA crew, Cooper McNeil, Tony Vlander, and, uh, and Smith. They also finished in the top three as well. A brilliant run for them. And Car Guy Racing, the darlings of the GTM class. Noted real estate mogul Takeshi Kimura, K. Francesco Cozzolino, and come Ledegar in fifth place. Outstanding work, lads. Yes. All right, King. I think it's time we let the world know that Pastor Maldonado came to Lamar to prove a point. And boy, did he. He came out there and he proved all the haters, the internet trolls, the keyboard warriors out there. He proved them right. God damn it. <laughs> yes, the pole sitting number 31 Dragon Speed Orica 07 LMP2. Pastor Maldonado at the wheel. He bend it. <sighs> but on the other hand, King, oh. you fire up Lamar Soleil. Because the dynasty is born. It's born. And. Oh, unlike last year, they did it. The Signatech Alpine boys have won the race out on track. Well, they yeah. could have won it on track last year. Had the next <laughs> car we're not we're about to talk about not cheated their ever-loving hearts out. Yeah, LMP2 was looking like a bar fight between two teams. That Signatech Alpine car of Nicola Lapierre, Pierre, uh, Pierre Thierrier, and Andre Negrau... Uh, and the number 26 G-Drive Racing Oris of Roman Rusinov, Jean-Eric Verne, and Job Van Uyters. Um, the 26 was the car, yeah, that won and then was disqualified, you know, for fuel flow fuckery. <laughs> so they came back and they had the car to win. And, you know, Verne was impressive. It was LaPierre and Verne on these averages. They were the only two drivers uh, averaging uh, within a certain threshold, they were they were far and away quicker than anybody else in that field. They were the only two guys averaging under a 330 yeah. over their fastest 30 race laps. So they were on one. And Job Van Oder as well. Again, he's a 20-year-old kid in his first time in a car. He was driving exceptionally well among some of the pros. So you have to feel like the 26 car was in contention to win this race until... Starter motor failure. Oh. <sighs> And that cost them several laps. It's worth noting that before uh, this, that first safety car for the number 95 Aston crash had separated these two. And they just, one couldn't pull away and one couldn't catch up. It was just a stable minute plus gap up until the 26 suffered its technical problem. Right. It would have given the Oris Luxury Limousine mark from Russia their maiden victory uh, you know, in a class that's only meant for customer teams and not manufacturers. But hey, if it's obscure enough, we'll let it in. Look, I think the battle between the it's totally an Alpine A110 and it's totally a Russian limousine is pretty good. <laughs> and that did uh, that did give the victory to the Signatech Alpine crew. King, let's just go over these numbers. This is their third win in the last four years. And for LaPierre, again, we mentioned was part of Toyota until being dropped for the team for mysterious reasons. This is his fourth class victory in LMP2 in five years. 
He's perfect in four attempts. The only time he missed out was when he was driving for Toyota's a plus one in 2017. He won in 2015 with KCMG, 2016 with, oh God, a, with Signatech, and 2018 with Signatech, and 2019 with Signatech. This dude's good. Yeah, Signatech Alphine. They, man, they are the, su- surprisingly, the LMP2 outfit to beat over 24 hours. Not because they only won two races, but they just happened to be Le Mans twice this season, and they never finished off the podium. Yeah, yeah they never finished off the podium at Eddie Weck round. The picture of consistency. Marvelous, marvelous stuff. Uh, all Orca Prodium in the Orca Cup. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. Uh, the number 38, the mighty 38, Jackie Chan, DC Racing Car, Hope and Tongue, Stefan Raquelme, Gabrielle Abri, finishing second, though the 37 car... With the arguably a little more exciting driver lineup of David Heinemeyer Hansen, Jordan King, and Ricky Taylor uh, retired after 199 laps. And the TDS Racing Orica of Francois Perotto, Matthew Fitzsivier, Loic Duval finishing third just ahead of the first of the not Oricas, the number 22 United Autosport Leger, Phil Hansen, Felipe Albuquerque, and Paul DeResta. This is not a pro am category, folks. Amateur is a very loose definition. Very, very loose. (laughs) Also, before we wrap this segment up, I just want to say as well, farewell, big friend. Yes. This was the BMW M8 GT's final race at Le Mans. Unless somebody enters it as a privateer car sometime down the road, we will miss our beloved and large friend. It's, It's disappointing to say that the reason why it wasn't mentioned in GTE Pro is because our big friends really weren't in the race. Yeah. But damn it, we got some solid yeah. memes out of it. And they're going to come back right to the United from... States and keep memeing. Coming yeah, to the... America. How are they going to ship them over country... here? <laughs> <laughs> the only country that's big enough to hold big mate comfortably. <laughs> You just you just have big mates roaming the the wild great plains of the Midwest like the wild buffalo. Do you think they're gonna bring over the big mate on another big mate? It's the only thing that big enough to cross the whole Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> they'd have they'd have to ship it on a Bentley Continental GT3. I'm just saying. Yes, the Bentley Continental GT3, putting the continent in continental. It was somebody say a, a good race. Yeah, a much better race than last year. I'd Infinitely say. Infinitely better infinitely better like i i think a lot of people were down on the race itself because the last couple hours like i'd probably say the last three hours were kind of everyone's worst fears coming to the forefront but not but i to me it doesn't really overshadow the full experience of the 24 hours the race as a whole was very fun to watch yeah, in three right. of the four right. classes. As Adam, jo- as Adam Johnson so eloquently put it, you, you know, everybody's moaning about Toyota dominating, and then the LMP2s or LMP1 privateers are just like, hold my beer, and then the GT pros are just like, hold my entire crate of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, noted Corvette racing superfan Adam Johnson. We'll see a better send-off later in the year, I promise. Right. Very true. I I enjoyed the race um, much better this time out last year. Again, I'd love to get to Lamar sometime. Um, also, one quick thing before we wrap this segment of the show up as well. 
Um, we're not done with 24-hour racing because as we're recording this, we're just hours away from the start of the ADAC 24-hour race. The 24 hours of the Nürburgring, a.k.a. one quarter of a 96 hours of Nürburgring <laughs> from the early 70s. God help your shocks. So this one, more of a pro-am affair. GT3 cars, GT4s, experimental cars, production cars. An Opel yeah, Manta probably... with a fox tail on the roof. An Opel Manta with a fox tail on the roof. That should be your garage 56 century. <laughs> if we can't have Big Mate, that car should win outright. I'd probably say this is... This isn't the event that was this. This isn't the the event that GT three was created for, but it pretty much feels like it. It is. It is. It is it the crown like, jewel of GT three yeah, racing. Is, yeah, it is the crown jewel. It is their world championship event for GT three? Yep. And all the manufacturers are coming out, especially the German. Ones. Oh yes, because to stop me if you've heard this one before. Mercedes front row lockout. <laughs> Porsche, yeah, Mercedes front row lockout, but Porsche are right there, and it's 24 hours around the green hell, and anything can happen, including snow. <laughs> including snow. And yeah. as a quick point of reference, I believe the last time a German manufacturer has not won this race was in 2002. Oh, man. Ooh, now, if we're in for what we were last year, expect a bar fight. Between Porsche and Mercedes, <laughs> expect there to be no mercy. Yeah, but don't. But also, don't sleep on some of the cars in the lower class. Again, there's there's over a dozen classes of cars, and there are ones that are just basically straight up production vehicles tuned to go racing with a roll cage and a and a safety harness. Look, I mean, there's a great variety of cars out there. Not you know, you have your BMWs, your Porsche Cup cars. Um, Audis, everything like that. Your Opel Mantas. Uh, driven by... Yes, your Opel Mantas. And drivers with nom de plumes that are so American it's painful. <laughs> Again, that race, if you're not already watching it, go ahead and do so. Pop it on after you're done listening to us, of course. Um, we're gonna go... We'll be back after this quiz musical interlude, and we'll be back with the next segment of the show. In the most recent news, the FIA announced their World Motorsport Council decisions on June 14th. It has been agreed to that the uh, the agreement on the 2021 Formula One World Championship Sporting, Technical, Finance, and Governance regulations has been delayed till at least October 2019. Also announced was the confirmation of the new Le Mans Hypercar Prototype category that will replace LMP1 as the top class in the FIA World Endurance Championship starting in 2020. Among the factories already committed to the program are Toyota and Aston Martin with their hypercars, which will produce 750 brake horsepower and 1,100 kilograms of weight. Both hybrid and non-hybrid cars are allowed to participate. The FIA World Rally Championship has also opened up the capacity to have hybrids in their top class starting in 2022 as well. Danny Sordo won the most recent round in Sardinia after Oitanek's car broke down on the final stage of the rally. It has also been announced the new Formula E calendar, which includes a brand new TBA round on the third round of the calendar. 
It also includes the new season finale at the London Etzel Center on July 25th and 26th in London, with the New York round being moved up to the penultimate race meeting, as well as a new race meeting in Seoul, South Korea, on May the 3rd, 2020. As well, Scott McLaughlin won both races of the Darwin Triple Crown and scored Penske Racing's 600th pole position across all forms of racing. Of course, in the week ahead, you may already have watched or may be watching right now the Formula 1 French Grand Prix featuring the Formula 2 and Formula 3 championships, the IndyCar Grand Prix of Road America, World Superbikes at Misano, Super Formula at Sportsland Sugo, and NASCAR at Sonoma as well as the 24 hours of the Nürburgring. Again, thank you so much for listening. I know this show's a little different. And again, I sincerely apologize. I take full responsibility for everything to put it in the spot to begin with. We will be back next time for episode 199 of Motorsport 101 as our 200th episode is just another show away. Again, places you can find us one more time. We're at motorsport101.com, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101, on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. If you wish to follow the host personally, you can at Harrison10NHD, at Ryan Eric King, and at RJ O'Connell. Special thanks as well to Cam Buckley, that's CBuckley917 without the vowels, for joining us as part of this episode. And of course, if you back us financially, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101 for $5 early access to every show for $10, you can listen to each show live as it's being recorded on our Discord server. Thank you very much for listening. For Andre Harrison, Cam Buckley, and Ryan Eric King, I'm RJ O'Connell, and thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Later, y'all.